Welcome to Grey Eye and Disability Arts Online's podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month features excerpts from the Disability Arts Online's Contested Spaces panel debate, held at the Foundry in London in January 2020. The discussion was chaired by curator and artist Aidan Mosby. On the panel were curator and founder of the Jennifer Lauren Gallery, Jennifer Gilbert, senior curator of Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art, Eleanor Morgan, and artist and writer, A Shop Mystery. I'm Aidan Mosby and thank you for coming to this panel conversation around how can we improve the representation of disabled curators and artists. So this one is about how we as disabled (coughs) curators and artists can take our rightful place in the mainstream or general arts ecology and how can we improve representation level the field. And systems and institutions are institutionally barriered. We know that. It's like access, working hours, practices, structures within there. How can we be on the same bus without a schism between disability and the mainstream arts world? So where are the critics? Where are the reviewers? Why is there an absence? And how can we remedy this? And I hope today is like part of or a beginning and part of that remedying things about making solutions about suggesting practical actions things which are realistic so that we can all become more of the carrot and less of the stick I just want to mention briefly a quote by Juno Diaz who said if you want to make a human being into a monster deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves And I think that's really, really important. He was talking about immigrants, but I also think that it's equally relevant to disability arts. It's happened with um, performance and other art forms within the disability arts world. But where is that within the art world? I don't see that. And if we're not being reflected, if our experience isn't being reflected, then what relevance does art have for us or to us? So the provocation which I (coughs) give the three curators and artists were, how can disabled curators and artists become more involved in the arts ecology? So we're going to start off with Jennifer Gilbert from the Jennifer Lauren Gallery. Thank you. So nearly three years ago, I set up the Jennifer Lauren Gallery. Um, My aim with this gallery is to champion and exhibit self-taught, disabled and overlooked artists who create outside of the mainstream art world and art history. The vision of my gallery is to be seen and recognised as a space yeah, in the UK supporting, championing and showcasing artists and a destination for finding out more about this field. I'm also passionate about being a voice and a platform for underrepresented artists and to help break down the stigma that still exists around this field. I'm also a freelance producer and curator, often working with and supporting disabled artists organisations and galleries, and an access support writer for funding applications for people with access needs. And finally, I'm a trustee of Barrington Farm in Norfolk, which supports learning disabled artists to achieve more in their life. 
Aidan and myself recently did a podcast for Disability Arts Online and Grey Eye looking at disability and curation. And I have witnessed firsthand how art critics have decided against viewing the work of disabled artists whilst I was working at a modern British art gallery. And as this talk is likely to discuss, it is frustrating that their work isn't really being reviewed or is only being picked up by smaller publications. However, on doing some research into this, I found things online. For example, there was a show called The Alternative Guide to the Universe at the Haywood Gallery, and it was described as an extraordinary show which asked you to look at work by people on the edges of art. And in the same sentence, he talks about them being psychotic, autistic, criminally insane, or merely untrained, and calls them misfits and dropouts. Note the use of the word misfits here. In another article that I read online, the actual headline of the review was Meet the Misfits. The criminal, the mentally ill, the spiritual, the eccentric, the alienated, and the untutored. And the reviewer said it left him disturbed. The um, opposite to this is over in America, where you have people like Jerry Saltz and his wife, Roberta Smith, who work for the New York Times, who champion this work, and people like Holland Cotter, who also writes for the New York Times, talking about how places like MoMA, the big modern British art gallery in New York, how they don't need any more Rauschenbergs or Twombly's, but what they need is those people that exist on the outside to be represented within their collections. So for me, I would like to get critics into a room together to discuss their issues with writing about this work or even just seeing it in the first place. When I spoke to an art critic recently, he said that people fear that they say the wrong thing or they might cause offence, so they choose not to write about it at all. But what do we need to do in order for them to feel that A, it is okay to ask if they are unclear on something or how they should describe something or the language they should use, and B, to look at this work with a critical eye and not feel that the other person will take great offence if something negative is said. So just to finish, I think perhaps someone like Disability Arts Online, and sorry to kick you out since you're in the room, um, and I'm happy to work on this with you, should produce an online document that can also be circulated that A, looks at the use of terminology, and B, looks at the myths around the volume of support disabled artists might need and questions that can be asked from the outset from these organisations to help determine the support or structures that they need to put in place to work with more disabled artists. So my name's Eleanor and I have been Senior Curator at MIMA in Middlesbrough uh, since 2015. And as an organisation we work to put our interaction, so building a public museum that is relevant to its context and shaped by a range of people. So three thoughts for artists, curators and writers. Build communities. So use social media to build allies and friendships. Set up crit clubs, reading and listening groups. You need peers who can help you to identify opportunities, critique ideas and applications and give you feedback and also just listen when you need to moan. Develop your knowledge. Never assume that you know what people are interested in or what other people are looking at. You must know what's happening in your field and use what means you have. 
podcasts, audio books and other books, magazines. Visit artists at home, go to shows and find descriptions of them online. And do the things that sustain you in your practice because this is a long game. So for me, this includes reading fiction, swimming, plenty of chats with friends who live far from me and bringing a packed lunch everywhere I go. And then just one bonus one, apply for as much as you can manage because you never know who sees the application and what that might lead to. Think of it like a chain of things that you can't imagine yet. And then finally, three notes for those working within institutions. So number one, be aware of tokenism. Making institutions representative and porous and bending them is a long-term endeavour that needs careful consideration and framing. And access doesn't have a point of completion. It's a process. Number two, broaden your horizons. We know you're busy, but you must diversify your knowledge and experience different things because programmes have to change. And number three, don't make the person with the protected characteristic responsible for change. The change has to happen at all levels of the organisation. And finally, everybody, please remember there's not one model for success. Um, my name is Ashok Kumar Mystery, also known as Ashok Mystery. Uh, we need to be careful in terms of the kind of representation that we seek. Um, so we need disabled curators and artists um, to be able to do what they want to do and not to conform to the conventions of the sector. That's really more and more important to me, this whole idea of not um, having to fit in, not fitting the frame, because we are, um, uh, in a lot of situations, being pushed into a corner where um, if you want to be part of something, then you have to change yourself, and the changes change should be a two-way street. We, need, we don't want um, disabled artists and curators to be interlopers. We want them to be equals. Um, we need to take a radical look at the relationship between disability and cultural progress. The association between disability and innovation is compelling. Most of the major figures who have progressed um, human culture um, have been what we now refer to as disabled. So look at people like Isaac Newton. I know these are all men, but um, we've got to kind of think about kind of like the key figures from history, and we have we need to uncover the female key figures from history so we can we can name check them as well. Um, we've got people like Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein, and Andy Warhol down at the Tate at the moment. And yet, we see disability um, as a degenerate trait. Um, even people like Van Gogh, um, I mean, how would he exist in the current sector? One of the main flaws that we, um, um, with the way that we pick artists, is the use of competition. This culture of competition is um, eroding um, the way that we find people and the way that people access the sector. Um, we put artists against each other uh, in a Darwinian race and care little about those who simply can't compete in such races. Competition screens out disabled people, disabled artists and curators. Also, an increasing number um, of institutions don't ex accept unsolicited, unsolicited communications. 
So how do we talk to them? We need mechanisms that encourage and ensure equality and opportunity for all. We need to stop relying on the celebrity model of audience development. Instead, we should use, a relevant, uh, use relevance to attract audience and develop exhibitions. We need to reassess what we see as excellence um, by relying less on neatness and perfection and explore the potential of um, excellence. And in doing so, uh, open to risk of difference. Um, abandon mimicry and innovate. I, I guess my initial response is a bit like Jennifer. It's not formed into a thought yet, but it's this question that you raised, Aidan, which connects to what Ashok said about um, ch changing the frame rather than squashing people into a way of doing things. Is a question about the conversation that you raised, Aidan, about the disability arts and the mainstream as these separate lands. I would be interested actually to hear from more people in the room about what's useful about having the disability arts conversation because I would imagine that if we move to your model, Aidan, where those things become part of the same thing, we would also lose things or miss things. And I think that connects with what you raised, Ashok, because, yes, there's something about creating, developing better spaces where more people can mm, show their work and talk about their work in ways that are more comfortable and more appropriate. But to Jennifer's point... I'd, I'm interested in how to challenge those mainstream spaces, but I think there needs to be a conversation with them so that they change, mm -hmm. and it has to be a, it has to be a negotiation and a dialogue. Mm -hmm. I can feel a tension already between these things. It's about perceptions about what's what people with disabilities are able to do, and that you know not everybody that we have to question those norms about, you know, there's digital poverty, there's like the inability to go to openings or to approach people and those anxieties. And I know you're not unaware of those, but I think it just raises those kind of issues for me. And then I guess drawing the things out from you, Ashok, was thinking about whose rules, whose agenda, whose agency, and it all comes down to power and gatekeepers and who has that agency. And I think quite often as, as disabled artists or disabled curators, it's like we're just thankful for the gig or that's the perception, rather than actually I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to do that. And like looking back at my kind of career, I wish I'd said no more often, but it's that fear that we'd never ever work again or that you're viewed as difficult or you're too difficult to work with or you're too demanding or you have too many other needs and your access and all of that. Where, and that, that way the power always retains with the institutions and so some of it is about where we show and some of it is about the funding models I think the conversation about art critics is a big one I'm sure we'll return to that again but I guess the point I was making in the intro about peers is that they're your first critics and um, however you can build that 
relationship or group that might be one person it might be hundreds I think having safe relationships with people who can give genuine feedback on your work whether that's something you know an application that someone else is going to see or at the minute I'm reading a book that an artist has just written their first book and I'm one of the first readers and it's amazing to be in that position or somebody you know who you can go oh I've got this idea and it's very very nascent but I think there I think before we talk about art critics and the New York Times and you know those those good models we need each need close critics if you like before something leaves and becomes public I think we as a sector we really need to kind of take a good look at ourselves and look at this whole idea of professionality and how we actually gauge that professionality I talked to um, a curator recently and um, it was quite a Course conversation. Um, this was person was working at a really really high level in a public institution, and there was me kind of questioning them on like how they um, talk to artists and how artists kind of access their organisation and so on and so forth. And it was almost as if they were saying that the prejudices that they keep, the the kind of the way that they filter people out, is to do with. Um, their professionalism, that it's to do with the way that they can kind of keep um, control or, or a handle on, the, on, on things, um, to stop things from going, getting out of control. And it was really worrying to see that this person working at such a high level had these views that they couldn't actually see that um, thinking differently or like kind of someone that needed a little bit of curatorial support was maybe someone worth talking to because it was some, someone that you can actually develop something with rather than just kind of taking something off the shelf with all the you know kind of bells and whistles already intact. So I guess we need to rethink how we see excellence and how we see quality as well. Can I just start by something someone on the floor said to me? to do with the first point about critics. And they said, could we unpack criticism and critics and what is the purpose of it? So I quickly Googled the term criticism and it means the analysis and judgment of merits and faults of an artistic piece of work in this context. And for me, it's important because, as I've mentioned, there is a lack of it that happens but also when it does seem to happen, as in these big publications like The Guardian and The Telegraph that I quoted, um, this use of language, this use of the term misfits and uh, people being seen as this other thing, and it's about how to change that. But also for me, what's important, um, and I think this was cemented to me through uh, the group called Mind the Gap, uh, did this small performance a few years ago in Manchester at a conference. And they did a small performance on the stage and then they were acting out as though they were handing out um, questionnaires to the audience to fill out. And you were like a fly on the wall in the situation. So you were hearing the people that went to see the show sort of saying, oh, you know, it was good for a disabled person. But they had a list of questions and it was like, you know, do you think this was good? And he was like, well, yes, because, you know, they're disabled. So, you know, I guess I'll just say yes. 
and you know, what would you give this out of 10? Well, I'll give them 10 because I want to boost the morale. And, but when they were talking between themselves, he was like, well, actually, that was pretty crap. And, you know, maybe they could have done this, this and this. But he wasn't putting any of that into the feedback form. And so that was how it was acted out. And then somebody from Mind the Gap came over and they redid the situation. And he said, oh, I happen to hear that, you know, you weren't really satisfied with that. And maybe could you put that into the feedback form? Because... You know, although we've got a learning disability, we too are people and we too want to grow and we want to um, achieve more in life. And if people are always just telling us it's good when actually they think it's crap, how are we meant to go on that journey? So their advice to the, sort of everyone that was sitting there was, you know, be truthful on these forms. We can take it. Like for a while, it might make <laughs> us feel a bit shitty and we might feel quite sad. But when we come back together, together as a group and we reflect on it, actually it's going to make us a better group and make us put on you know, more powerful performances that might achieve more um, reviews and things in the future. And that small snippet they did in this conference really stuck with me about the importance of people being truthful on questionnaires and things like that in order to, um, for the benefit of the group, not just to be lying to themselves. And so I think this is why I talk about the importance of critique and things being in national press. Because firstly, if the national press seem to value things, then other people seem to value things. But it's just the fact that often people aren't going to these things because they don't know they exist. And if the national press picked up on them more and advertised these things more, even in things like the Guardian Guide, there could be a small thing that someone would read in there. Um, then more people would be going to see this work. It would be on more people's radars, and ultimately that's for the benefit of everybody involved. When we talk about um, uh, criticism as well, are we talking about power? Um, and we're talking about kind of power of equals. And if you don't see someone as your equal, then how are you able to kind of lay into them and, and you know, kind of give them the, the criticism that, that they deserve. So uh, there's a lot in terms of the psychology of, of, um, uh, of that process of criticism and what people actually think of people in the first place that we really need to start taking into account because I, I kind of understand what you're saying about um, exposure as well. There's another step it feels like that we're missing um, um, when, we, when we're talking about criticism that it's not just that it's not on people's radars that that it feels as if there is a genuine reluctance towards even approaching something when the D word is there. You know, that people back off because it's almost like they don't want to kind of shape that hornet's nest because they might actually come the cropper, you know, they might actually end up in a really bad place. Helena? I just wanted to add to your point, Jennifer, about the defining the terms because I think I've experienced the phrase critically engaged being used as a kind of shorthand in contemporary art for something that connects with mainstream <coughs> discourse or theory or with a with a contemporary art scene at the moment. And I think that's you talk quite a lot about coded language, Aidan, and I think that's that's a term that would be worth having a whole event around <laughs> what is critically engaged. And by saying that, 
what are you excluding from that category and therefore diminishing? Okay, that's a good point to uh, open it up to the floor. My language from Dash. Um, a couple of things. I was interested, Jennifer, you were talking about critics having um, taken offence, being scared of causing offence, because I would think most critics don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, they have hard skins because they're running down people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make a point of Lynn Gardner, who now doesn't work for The Guardian, but it's a theatre critic. She did the hard work. I know around live arts, she and um, disability, disabled artists are working in live art. She, she did that hard work to try and understand where the work was coming from, because otherwise she could have just said, that's crap. Mm-hmm. And, she, and I don't know how many other critics would put that legwork in, but it clearly needs to be a two-sided process mm-hmm. there. I want to respond on carrots and sticks, because <laughs> I'm not a donkey, and I think sticks do have a relevance myself, because even though they say that the DTA and Quality Act have uh, no real teeth, but at least they have some teeth, and that is a stick. Um, and the other thing I was bring up was about the private art world, which I feel is such a huge hidden elephant behind the visual art world, and does shape so much of what happens. But we're never it's never out there, out in the open. So, I mean, around class and privilege, I think they have a huge impact on that, setting a value on art. Mm-hmm. And the, so the galleries, the private galleries, the private collectors, the agents, the art fairs, they, that's all going on. And I, as a disabled artist, how much do we have to do with them? But they are affecting us. So that, in what way do you think they're affecting you? Because they're affecting the visual arts world. They have an enormous amount of power within that. And, they, and obviously that power is influence. And I mean, you probably know much more about the private art world than I do, Jennifer. You do move in and out of it through outsider art fairs. And I've only, through Dash, we've only had one artist who had an agent. Ah, it's quite disgusting how they used us and they used the Herbert Gallery in Coventry for their own commercial ends. And I just thought, God, we're just like um, lambs to the slaughter because we are just, to them, this is just a commercial opportunity. And they used the private view to sell all the artwork. Which, it may be great for the artist, but I'm not being conditioned to understand how that commercial world works. And I realise how powerful it is. Mm. Um, so obviously I do art fairs and I represent disabled artists. So everything I do is kind of to the best interest of the artist. But what's interesting with the private art world and when I do these art fairs and I'm showcasing the work of by disabled artists, for example, an artist I work with who's autistic and non-verbal, um, his artwork is now collected by very famous people around the world. And it's just taken one person to photograph that who has a massive following. And that's boosted that um, disabled person's reputation. It's put them in front of a whole audience they've never been put in front of before, who's not looking at the backstory of the artist, but looking at their artwork as a piece of artwork in itself and appreciating the skill and the time that has gone into it 
and then they're buying it on the basis of the aesthetic quality of the work and not on, you know, he's, he's oh, isn't it a shame he's autistic, I better give him a bit of money. And so the private art world is a very important art world, but it's getting it put in the right way in front of these people that stays true to the artist and stays true to their beliefs and true to them as a person, but putting it out there for people to see in the right manner. And I think a lot of agents that deal with these artists don't do that, and I see that firsthand, how a lot of agents take advantage of these artists. I completely see the point there as well. I think when we look at public and private um, sides of the art world, we need to actually understand what the point of the public end of the art um, was actually for, to do the things that you can't do in a commercial world. But now, increasingly, with the change in politics, what you have is a situation where it feels as if more and more um, public art galleries are working kind of, kind of in cahoots with, or to the agenda of the private sector. And what I mean by that is that for, um, in terms of value of an artist or whatever, uh, um, uh, or an artist's work, it's, um, it's boosted by um, being represented. So what happens is, if you are picked up by a gallery, that makes you much, much more um, um, uh, kind of um, likable, not just to um, other collectors or buyers or whatever, but then it de develops some kind of um, uh, kudos for you within the, pri within the public sector as well. And I think that, that, that we need to kind of really look at that and the, the dangers of that. So can, is there a way that we can develop people within the public sector without the influence of the private sector? Is that something that we can actually do, you know, so that, that we're, we're picking up people that we would otherwise miss? These worlds aren't separate. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all sorts of co-mingling and cohabitation, and, and that actually there are so many different art worlds, and we know that in this room we, we're all part of different conversations. One thing that I've found really sad to observe in the last few years is the amount of smaller galleries who genuinely support artists and work in really exciting ways with a range of artists closing because of the economy and the bigger galleries getting bigger and encroaching more and more into the roles and spaces of the public institutions and essentially kind of masquerading as public spaces. And I think it's our... Part of our roles as curators, those of us who are, to think about who we're being, who and what we're being influenced by, because it's very easy for institutions with smaller program budgets and decreasing program budgets to be wooed by commercial galleries who will pay for the shipping or the framing or the publication or whatever. And for that to form then a very important part of the programme budget for a public institution, which means there's a huge amount of influence. On the other hand, as you've identified, Jennifer, the, the big commercial galleries are the ones taking out adverts. Mm -hmm. When you take out adverts, you're more likely to get reviews. You know, it's like a big kind of network of influence. 
And it's part of my job to be very tuned into that and aware of that and to make decisions with that knowledge in mind. So that's not about curating in a nutshell, but it is a part of the kind of um, knowledge and analysis that we have to employ as curators. Hello, I'm Sonia Bue. Um, I wanted to just pick up on Ashok's point um, from the very beginning, I think you were talking about um, not doing things in conventional ways and how important that is. And for me, sort of that idea, that concept has um, woven itself in and out of the rest of the discussion. Um, and I'm really interested in my own work in finding different ways of working and thinking about different templates. Mm -hmm. um, and just on the question of criticism and how important it is obviously to get reviewed and to get your work in front of audiences, um, but how before that you need to have um, a group of people around you who mm -hmm. can encourage you, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. But it's really important for me, as an autistic person, for those voices to be voices that are not telling me that what I'm doing and the way that I do things are not the right way. Um, because I think, you know, we have to be more open now to all the different ways in which it's possible to be an artist, to be a creative person, and that actually what concerns me a little bit about the discussion is that are we thinking about um, disability, um, disabled artists and curators trying to fit in to a mould and thereby gaining success? Or are we thinking about wanting to change the ecology um, and, and do something more radical? I'm, I'm sort of in that camp of thinking that actually it's really important to just do things differently and experiment. Um, and one of the ways that I've been able to do that is by getting Arts Council funding and self-leading projects and that has enabled me to circumvent a lot of the issues that have been discussed but we all know that that funding is very scarce and very difficult to come by and you need a certain level of expertise to be able to secure it. I would just like to come to you now, Eleanor, as somebody from an institution and you were saying that, um, you said that equity, diversity and access is at a high level and happening in a way that you've never seen it happening before. How can, you know, curators level the ecology of the playing field? And it's like, there's been quite a lot about artists, but I'd like to bring it back to curators. What I said is that equity, diversity and access are being discussed at a high level. I didn't say they were being, that they were being acted on or that things were <laughs> happening. But that is important to know. So I've been at uh, events with all of the directors from all of the Plus Tate organisations across the UK, which was a whole day looking at the, the word equity. Too many angles in one day, you know, too many things to discuss. But everybody was there because there's an urgency around that conversation that's being felt by those people who are leading those organisations. It felt exciting to me that, that, was, that, that there were so many people, decision makers, spending their time talking about that. What I said after that is that things are happening too slowly. Yes. So to go to your point, Sonia, and 
to your question, Adam. I think it's there's a real difference between programming and uh, structure of the organisation. And why I feel really excited about the project that we're working on together with Dash and Wising Arts Centre and Midlands Arts Centre in Birmingham is because it's about changing who the curators are within the institution. So yeah, I'm, I thought it was really interesting the point you made about how many disabled people will be working within the institutions who don't say that or don't feel confident, comfortable to speak about that. But we also have to change the workforce really much more quickly and more radically than we've been uh, prepared to so far. So that's why this, this programme, which is about um, routes to working as curators in institutions, excites me so much because if you have a curator who is making decisions, who's bringing their expertise and their networks and their knowledge, things will change so fast. So I guess I've seen a lot of organisations programming slightly differently and that's great, that's, that's good, but we also need the people within the organisation to change for really long-term structural change to happen. And what's happening in MEMA around that? One answer is that DASH initiated three, two years ago, um, a national partnership which they applied for money from the Arts Council to make a four-year programme with these three organisations to have a curator work with us for a year within the organisation and the outcomes of that project are not defined. So Aidan's going to start with us next week and we don't know what he will curate within the organisation but there will be some public outcome. And each organisation has a very different remit, different connection to the place it's within, different audiences, different art forms. So there have been then these three different opportunities for curators with different practices. But of course, that's a very small amount uh, of opportunities within a national scene. But we've already seen that lots of arts organisations want to be part of this. They're, they're, they're jealous and they're interested. And that's fantastic because then it, sh it, it just demonstrates a model. And there are a lot, I know there'll be lots of other exciting models out there, but this is one that I feel close to and passionate about, which is about a fast uh, shift and lots of learning from lots of different people together and a different approach to, um, well, a different approach to recruitment and a different approach to knowledge sharing and uh, a programme which is all about support and development, development of a practice. So it feels quite tangible to me, which I like. Thank you. What do curators want to hear from artists and how best can artists make contact? Curators feel overworked. <laughs> I know, sad but true. I think that's really important to remember when getting in touch with people, though, that it might take three or four emails before someone replies, but I don't think it's bad to be persistent. That thing I said about building your knowledge of the field you want to be in, 
make an appropriate connection. So try to think about a space or a program or a set of research or whatever it is that's relevant to your work so that you can say why it's relevant really clearly and make that connection really obvious to the person you're getting in touch with. Don't just do a scattergun, but be kind of careful and thoughtful about who you get in touch with. A lot of places won't accept an unsolicited proposal. And actually, I don't think that's a very good way to contact people. I really think the best way of contacting someone is normally an email, because it's, it's the easiest thing for the person to digest normally in their own time and in their schedule, is to try to make a point of contact and start a conversation rather than going in with a boom, this is my thing and this is what I think you should be interested in because there are all sorts of reasons why that might not work for a person. A, they feel like they're being told what to do. Mm-hmm. B, they've got a whole programme laid out in front of them and they then are like, well, we haven't got a slot for your exhibition, sorry, later. You know, it's a, it's a very quick way of saying no. But to try to build a rapport by showing that you've, you're interested in something they're interested in, or you read something, or you saw something, to make that point of connection. Is there a difference if, say, like you want to propose an event, or mm-hmm. you know, something public-facing, which doesn't involve an exhibition? That's why I would start with a conversation. Because actually, I would say to most artists, it's very <coughs> unlikely that you will be given an exhibition without having built a dialogue and a rapport with the organisation over quite a long period of time. And a good way of doing that is to do something that might feel smaller first. So that might be, yeah, it might be an event, it might be developing a piece of interpretation for a collection with an organisation, it might be, um, it might even be reviewing one of their shows. I mean, just to build a kind of understanding between you and that curator and to remember that the organisation is made up of people. So I think I just think that's really key because that helps with how you approach something. I think like one of the things that I benefited most from was um, mentoring. And you can make an Arts Council application and put mentoring as part of that, or just solely as that. And also, as an Arts Council application, you can find somebody to fill in your Arts Council application form, and they'll pay for that as an access need. So, you know, I'm somebody who has an incredible difficulty with forms and get that assistance. And so it's like, so that mentoring and asking perhaps, you know, to look at your body of work and being able to talk about it in an artistic context and that codified language which maybe curators or gallerists want to want to hear so that, you know, that you're not just, well, I've got these paintings, like, and, you know, I think they're all right, can you show them? And, and it's like, you know, and, and that, and, yeah. It's, so it's kind of using the system, but also acknowledging that that system can support you, not all the time, but that level of support is there for that particular thing. Well, how do you approach how do you, how do galleries you approach, and museums yes. to make shows with them? Mm-hmm. It is very difficult to approach museums and galleries um, and to get them to listen to you and to get them to take what you do seriously. 
But I do formulate plans, but the way I work with different organisations is I don't want it to be something where I go in, I'm ticking their box of working with disabled people, and then, you know, that's their yearly quota met, and then we go away and nothing ever happens again. When I work with people, I want it to be for a long-term project. I want them to really get on board with the artist, the artist ethos, um, you know, everything about that artist, and to respect them as an artist. So if someone just literally wants me to do one thing and then go away again, I would actually turn down that opportunity because I don't think it's beneficial for the artist and for their career and for what I stand for as someone that's trying to support these people. It doesn't feel right that we should just go in and be that yearly quota of disabled people. I want to work with people long term and have a legacy with them. Is that <coughs> to do with um, the way people's art is written about, so um, moving away from disability as a hook, um, you know, in the interpretation, mm -hmm. and uh, being something that's the exotic factor in the reason for them allowing that into their gallery, and the disability just being a matter of fact, it just being, you know, mm -hmm. um, on, on the artist's terms. Mm -hmm. When I approach a gallery, the way I write about a gallery is I only write what the artist wants me to write, so I won't ever write anything about them if they don't feel me feel comfortable with me writing it. I was working with a big mainstream organisation uh, whilst I was in another role. When I was in that role, um, this organisation was about to print their booklet about an exhibition I was doing, and they'd taken out some of the words that the artist had written to describe themselves because they didn't want to mention that they were disabled, and they didn't want to mention these other terminology. So I wrote back, I showed it to the artist very briefly that I was working with and then quickly wrote back to them before they sent it to print and I was like, actually, why have you taken the word disabled out of it and why have you taken um, their description of their work out of it because actually it's their voice and if that was a really famous artist, would you have done that? Are you only doing it because it is a disabled artist and actually what right do you have to change that person's writing without checking with me first. You've literally sent it to me 10 minutes before it's going to print, saying, you know, is this okay? Well, no, it's not okay. I want you to put that wording back in. And then they then delayed the print because then we had to have a very long conversation about the importance of not changing someone's language without their permission and actually just not changing it in the first place because you wouldn't do it with someone like Peter Blake, so why do it with a disabled artist? I'm going to come to the panellists now for some, for just a closing statement, reflection. Shall we start with you, Ashok? Um, I think uh, one of the things that is really compelling for me is uh, when we stand together, the, the strength that we actually have. So um, when we, um, we can make change, but we have to work together. And we can make real lasting change but we need to shout together. Um, I was working on my own, um, was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and it was, um, I, I contacted Mike, and Mike put me in touch with Colin, and it was then that one of my pieces got, I got an email straight back saying, yeah, we need to publish this. And that was the first time that had happened to me, and ever since then, it's been a roller coaster. Um, meeting people, meeting new people, meeting new term, um, terminologies, 
understanding things like neurodivergence, um, put, putting the puzzle together. We can't do it by ourselves, and we're not alone. We can work together. I would say something which is, remember how many different art spaces there are, whether that's, as you pointed out, Aidan, not everything needs to be an exhibition. I'm a massive advocate for that. Or thinking about the space of a book or a website. But also remember that there is a fantastic ecology of artist-led and um, kind of more grassroots or smaller organisations which often pay better than bigger organisations and offer more time and support, more flexibility. You know, it's not all about being part of a bigger organisation and going in for that massive exhibition. So just remember that that word ecology is a really useful descriptor for different scales, different tones, different time scales, which suit different practices. I want to end with something that um, George Basie, who's uh, a curator from the Welcome Collection, ended your last talk with Aidan at the MAC. And I wrote down on something that I really wanted to say today was, how do you define success? Is it having your work in the Tate, or is it, that or is it your work having an impact on people? And that stayed with me since he said it last time. It's important. It is important. I think one of the other words that he used was compassion. And yeah, I think there's a complete lack of compassion uh, pervasive in the, particularly in the country. And it's like being compassionate to ourselves and with each other is really, really important. In conclusion of today, I, I feel, I mean, remarkably, I feel a little bit more optimistic about things. <laughs> I, I think that is good to hear that you know, things are slowly changing and that institutions are beginning to, to take note and, yeah, and realise that they have, you know, they've got a long way to go, but, the, you know, they're starting to make that journey. So thank you to Disability Arts Online. I'm saying that because this is my final event and thank you very much for everyone's contribution. So if we can all say thank you to Ashok Kumar Mystery, to Eleanor Morgan, and Jennifer Gilbert. Thank you. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.